I got a great big thought tonight. Um, despite the uh, the little bitty sermon title, which I'll give you a bit later, but uh, I'm, it's 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 gonna it's gonna stretch you a little bit. I know um, I don't know you didn't really. I was mostly you know kind of pep rally preaching this morning. You didn't really have to think about all that, but but I'm gonna try to engage your brain tonight. Everybody bring their minds with them to church. It's good practice. All right. I'm going to ask you to think with me tonight. Great big thought, but um, very simple. I've got one point tonight, and I don't think that you'll have any trouble understanding what I'm trying to say. I hope you'll give me your careful attention. In Zechariah chapter 4, in verse 8, at least a familiar phrase in the text that we'll read. In verse 8, the Bible says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. Here's their phrase. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro, through the whole earth. Let's say a word of prayer tonight. Father, thank you for all that we've already enjoyed in this service, the good singing, the specials, and for this uh, stirring report on what you're doing in one of the darkest places in our world. We thank you, God, that you're at work everywhere where there are willing men and women that are uh, opening their mouths for the Lord Jesus Christ and doing your bidding faithfully and obediently. I pray, God, that you'd stir the hearts of your people to see what their part is, not just around the world, but, Lord, where you've planted them here in northwest Florida, in the neighborhoods in which they live, in the professional and educational circles in which they operate. God, I pray that you'd help us to see where we're missing the small things and that we'd not despise the day of small things. God, help us tonight. You know my heart. I want to help this church. I pray, God, that you'd fill me and that you'd help me tonight to help your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I, I am a stickler for finding the context of a passage and trying to set things in their historical context. I'm not going to uh, labor too much in that tonight and particularly here in Zechariah chapter 4. The task of the prophets in a nutshell was to call the, the, the erring, generally, the erring people of God back to the law that they had forsaken. The same is true in Zechariah's ministry. He is a uh, post-exile prophet, and he and Haggai are trying to stir up God's people to get back to the business of reconstructing the temple which had been torn down. And there had been a season in Israel's history, particularly in the days of Solomon, where they had had a realization of the glory that had been anticipated in the Mosaic law. You read that Old Testament law and it anticipated a period of national glory when Israel would be at the head of the nations and all the nations round about would seek unto Israel's God. That had briefly been realized in Israel's history, but because of their rejection of the Word of God, because of their practice of idolatry, because of their exercise of sin, the consequences of that sin was that they were carried away captive, and now just a tiny remnant of this once great people had come back to the city of the great king, and they've got a 
tall order before them to rebuild the temple and to hopefully re-experience and re-realize the promised glory, not only of the law, but of the prophets. And it looks like, to be honest, that vision at this time in Israel's history of this national glory seems so far off. In the days of Zerubbabel, it seemed as if the glory had passed and the hope of its return was lost. But they're being encouraged in this passage not to despise the day of small things. We sometimes think of glory in terms of events. Marvelous, glorious events. But the reality is for most of us, when we do get a glimpse of God's glory, it is as a, con- it is as a consequence of the accumulation of a lot of seemingly small duties performed faithfully. They're the accumulation, these glorious visions, if you would, wherever we get a glimpse of them, are the accumulation of small things. Now, I want you, we're going to go from the, we're going to go back to the law and then we'll turn our attention to the New Testament. We're going to look at, at a national scene and then, and then make the, the, the application to the church. But the, the very revelation of the law, as you know, was, was a revelation of the glory and holiness of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, as Moses, as Moses rehearses the Ten Commandments and the experience that they had had at Sinai 40 years earlier, he, re- he recalls, he recollects for the people the quaking, the fire, the glory, and the fact that they came to Moses and said, we don't want God to talk to us directly anymore. Just, you just get the message and you, and you report the message to us. They had been, literally, they had been overawed by the glory of God in the giving of the law. And wherever that law was obeyed, and I'll go to the passage, but in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Bible tells them that wherever the law was obeyed, that was to them a testimony of their greatness and nearness to God among the nations. They were told, they were told that if they would keep and do the commandments, that that would be their wisdom and their understanding in the sight of the nations and that the nations, here's missions in the Old Testament, that the nations would look upon that nation and say, what is a nation that is so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? That was the consequence of the nation seeing their order and obedience to the Mosaic Code. Everybody with me? But in practice, while there were features of the law that we might point to as being glorious, the the feast observances, the vestments, the glory of God coming down and filling the tabernacle and later the temple, most of the law was so practical as to seem inglorious. Like this. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Where's the glory in that? <laughs> or, or here, here, how about this one? Thou shalt not steal. But there is the glory of God in those commandments. Tell the truth. Don't steal. Don't covet. And actually, when you start studying that Old Testament law, 
It's actually even more curious than that. For, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, they're told that when their neighbor's livestock gets out, they're supposed to get the livestock, take it back to their neighbors. How about that for practical? In Exodus chapter 23, they're told to make sure that they put up a fence for their livestock and then to latch the gate. Okay, that's deep material. Everybody with me, latch the gate. Amen, hallelujah. You can run the bases or come to the altar whenever you're ready. Latch the gate. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 22 is another example in that, in that culture, in that uh, place in the world. They had their porch not at the front of the house or the back of the house, but at the top of the house. It was on a flat roof. And every family that had a flat roof where they entertained people, they were supposed to put up a battlement around their own roof. Now, I, what, here, here's my proposition to you. Yes, the mount quaked and was on fire as a testimony to the glory of God. But the God of glory told his people to take responsibility for their own stuff. And there's glory in that. That's my, that's, that's my, that's my message to you tonight. Now, now go, to, go to Deuteronomy chapter 23, and, and I'm going to illustrate this. And, I, and I, I hesitate to do this. I believe the Lord would have me to do it because it's a biblical illustration. When I met your, when, when, I, when I got my introduction to Victor Baptist Church, I sat, I sat in here in the Jubilee years ago. I mean, I, w I had just gone to Ridge Road when I got in my introduction to Victory. And I sat in this, and I was just, I was just amazed. I'd never seen such order. I'd never seen such planning. I'd never been seen, I got a, I got a word for Pastor Fleur, polish. Because friend, where I came from, there was none of that. None. And I sat in a service here, and I'm telling you, as a young pastor, I watched the service go down. I watched everybody stand over there with their mic, you know, just wait, just wait. Just. And all, all the pastor's got to do is raise his eyebrows, and everybody just moves. Everything falls into place. It's beautiful. Man, it's beautiful. I don't know where, it, where else it works that way, but it's a lovely thing when it works. And I said, I have got to have some of that, because I didn't have any. I still don't have much of it. And so knowing the polish around here, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to help the church with, a, with an illustration that's just a little bit coarse, but I believe, that, I believe this is, we're still in the Bible, amen? All right, you can handle the Bible, okay? So um, I'm talking about national order and personal responsibility. I was in India in 2019. Great experience. Got to see some things I'd never seen before. We were in a unique part of India. A lot of Portuguese influence. A little bit more of a European flair perhaps than most of the country of India. But uh, one of the things, so we were in the downtown area at one point. We were, we were doing some church meetings and some of these local churches met in like hotel venues, uh, public meeting places and in downtown hotels and such. And we were, we were waiting, we were actually present at a, we were waiting in the hotel lobby at a place where they were having a ladies conference and the men that had gone, our wives were participating so we're just sort of standing by. And, and, and there in the downtown area, they would utilize the, the sides of these buildings as a billboard basically. 
And so in this case, the building opposing the building where we were standing, here is a public service billboard on the side of this building in India. And it said, it had, a, it had a, an animated picture of Gandhi. You may have heard of Gandhi before. And Gandhi, let's, I mean, let, let's be honest, I'm not, I'm not bragging on his, on his religious inclinations whatsoever, but what Gandhi accomplished nationally and politically was rather impressive because the subcontinent of India, is, it is the most diverse place on the planet. And he got all of those different religions and all of those different ethnicities and all those different languages under one government that declared their independence from the greatest military power on the planet at that time, and they did it without the shedding of blood. It's a rather impressive, it's rather impressive national and political feat. But here is Gandhi of, of Indian glory as far as that goes, the greatest political figure in Indian history, modern history at least. And here is a picture of Gandhi and a quotation on the side of this building in downtown Goa, the city in Goa, India. And it said this, open defecation free India. Did everybody get it? And I read that and I laughed out loud. I thought, I cannot imagine seeing this in Pensacola, Florida. Can you imagine that in, an, in a neighborhood near you? Open defecation free pace. And I thought, that is so strange. There is the preeminent personality in Indian politics. And what is his message to the populace of India? It is not about gun control. It is not about, I don't know, you pick your policy. There are so many things that you could borrow the image of the greatest political personality in your national history, but his image in this case was to advocate not defecating in public places. You see, it does great on your polish a little bit, doesn't it? I'm helping you tonight. You don't know it yet, but I'm helping you. Now, interestingly, and, and, and here's a, I, I, I laughed out loud when I first read it, and then I thought, this is brilliant. This is. Because, because you cannot fix the national political woes when your citizenry is accustomed to defiling its own public places. How can, you, how can you help a free people elect good leaders when they don't know the difference between a toilet and a sidewalk? Amen, hallelujah. Now, strangely enough, that was in 2019. In the same year, in 2019, the Wall Street Journal carried a headline with this, with this headline. California's biggest cities confront a defecation crisis. Lawmakers ban plastic straws as a far worse kind of waste covers the streets of San Francisco and Los Angeles. What an irony. Which, by the way, it was in 2019 on the occasion of Gandhi's 150th birthday. He's been dead for a while, but on the occasion of his 150th birthday, they declared India as being defecation-free, open defecation-free, which was a milestone in their national history. And at the same time, you've got Californian leaders 
that are trying to fix the hole in the ozone layer and they've got multitudes upon multitudes that would just as well, I could be really coarse right here, but your pastor has given me all this polish over the last several years. They don't know better than to defecate in the open. That's going on in San Francisco. That's going on in Los Angeles. And the people that put up with that politically are moving to a neighborhood near you. And if you're from California, I am for you being in a good church. Amen. Just leave your politics there. Here's the thing. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 23. I told you this was a biblical matter. It is a biblical matter. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 12. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad, and thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad. Thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back, and cover that which cometh from thee. That's about as polished a way of saying that as you possibly can. Hey, look, it's, it's better than that. I mean, it's better than you could imagine. Verse 14, for the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp. Amen. God says, I'm walking around here. I don't want to step in that. Listen to me. Here, here's, here's the point. Now, we're going to move from the, from the national to the local. But the wisdom, of the, and the, the wisdom and the glory of that Old Testament law is demonstrated in this principle. Listen to me. You make the mess, you clean it up. That is, there is wisdom and glory in that simple maxim that is spelled on multitudes of the pages of the Old Testament law. Now go with me to, in your Bible to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. All right, so we've been in the book of Deuteronomy God addresses His Old Testament people. Now we come to the New Testament. We're in the heart of it here in the book of Ephesians. Now I'm going to save myself a little bit of time, but Ephesians is laid out in two basic sections. As with so many of the very doctrinal books of your Bible, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Hebrews, you have doctrine addressed and then practice because practice is always rooted in doctrine. If you want to act right, you got to believe right. If you're not acting right, it's a, it is a demonstration that you don't believe properly because they're inextricably related in, in the fabric of the universe as well as in the pages of the New Testament. Doctrine and practice. You don't get to pick the two. You don't get to say, just give me doctrine, don't worry about the practice. There are a lot of Bible believers got problems with taking the doctrine and ditching the practice, and you're not a good Christian if you hang on to the doctrine and you ditch the practice. Amen. Amen. See, King James only, but you're not faithful to your wife. You're not a Bible believer. Amen. Right? You're a drunkard, you don't pay your bills. Who cares if you believe in the pre-trib rapture, the premillennial return of Jesus Christ? You're a lousy human being, hallelujah. A King James Bible-believing lousy human being. You need to get right with God. Amen. I've just had my belly full. Are these people who want to want to rub the cover of their Bible and brag on their spirituality and don't know the God of the Bible? You ought to believe more than just a cover. Amen. And if you do, you'll act on its contents. Right. So, 
in the book of Ephesians, you've got doctrine and then practice. It'd be a shame just to have the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And so Paul is emphasizing in that first doctrinal section, he's emphasizing the universal body of Christ. I hope that's not an offensive concept to you. I don't see how you read the book of Ephesians and arrive at anything other than the reality of a universal, invisible, whatever you want to call it, body of Jesus Christ, amen, of which we are all part and members and of, of which Jesus Christ is our living head, seated in, a, in the heavenlies. And that's the other thing that's emphasized in that first half of the book of Ephesians. What God has accomplished in heavenly places, because my has he accomplished some things in heavenly places and made them true for you and I. Amen. We're seated in heavenly places. We've been given all blessings in heavenly places. They're ours. That's what the first half of the book of Ephesians is about. But after that, after that first half, it moves on to the practical application in relation not just to the universal church, but in relation to the local church. Again, you can't say that you believe in the universal church and not have confidence and be engaged in the local church. Where are you supposed to practice the principles in relation to the universal church if you're not a part of local church? Amen. And if you believe all those wonderful, glorious truths about our reality and our standing in heavenly places, well, you're, you're good for nothing if you don't carry some of that stuff out here on earth, in earthly places, right? So that's what the second half of the book is about. But even the practical application follows a certain pattern. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Now watch this. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. So he begins with personal transformation, right? You're to walk worthy. But watch, he, that follows logically to say that, verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing, look at the terminology, one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When you experience personal transformation, it will be manifested in your interpersonal interactions. Everybody with me? Don't tell me that you've been changed when you can't get along with anybody. It's not true. This is all through here. Chapter 4 and verse 11, or verse 12. Again, personal transformation, but it, it, it is communicated, manifested, verse 13, in the interpersonal. Chapter 4 and verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is that even Christ. That's personal transformation from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that whichever joint supply. That is interpersonal interaction. It carries over into chapter 5 when it starts talking about being filled with the Spirit. There is personal transformation, but it shows up in your relationships with each other. In chapter 5 and verse 21, it manifests itself in interpersonal relationships and interaction. So here's the point. Okay, bear with me. I, I want you to use your mind. There's a great big loop here. Bear with me. Before you can be too concerned, right? So, so here's the point. God wants to change you. Now look, I say that because I'm the one doing the preaching. When I'm sitting in the pew, I'm saying to myself, when I'm right with the Lord, God wants to change me. Because if I sit there in the pew and say, boy, I hope so-and-so is hearing this. Boy, I hope my wife is paying attention to the preacher this morning, amen. She really needs this. I'm missing the point, right? That, that would be to miss the point because the Lord is trying to change me through his word and then that's going to be manifested in my relationships. Before you can be too concerned with straightening out your relationships, you need to be willing to work on yourself. 
In other words, Jesus put it this way. Take care of the beam in your eye before you concern yourself with the moat in your neighbor's eye. Now, you don't want your, your neighbor to have a moat in his eye. And it's okay to help him with the moat. But not when you're carrying around a beam. There's an order to these things. Amen. All right, by the same token. All right, now we're getting closer to application. By the same token, before you can concern yourself, and there's a lot of emphasis in our society on this fair thing, before you can concern yourself overmuch with repairing broken systems, well, there's a lot of talk about broken systems in our culture. Before you can repair disrepaired institutions, you should really concern yourself with the problems that are closest to home. Amen. Before you should, I want to be careful. I realize it's been recently addressed in this pulpit. But before you, before you participate in some kind of national protest to, to, to repair something that's systematically broken, you might want to work on your marriage. You might want to make sure your kids are in order. You might want to make sure that you're right in the neighborhood that you live in before you try to fix somebody else's neighborhood. Amen. Now let's bring it on home, okay? There was a, he was an intellectual. I think he taught at the University of Chicago. I don't remember. He's from a generation past. His name was Neil Postman. Neil Postman wrote a book. He wrote multiple books, but he wrote one book that uh, really served as a, as a, he was a prophet of his own culture. I don't even know if the man was saved. He's from within academia. He wrote a little book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was motivated to write this book because of the proliferation of television in his generation. We're talking about a book that was published in the 1980s. And he traces the development of some of these, some of these technologies and the influence that it had had on society at large. And he actually traces, this is back in 1989, he traces the disintegration, the, dis, the, the diminishing of certain things that are needful in a society just by going from a typographical society to a telegraphical society where you communicated in words that might be sent by post across the ocean as opposed to hammering something out in Morse code to give nearly, nearly real-time updates from one part of the world to the other. And he said that telegraphy, I'm not talking about smartphones, 1989, some of y'all remember when 1980, some of you don't know what the 80s were like. The 1989, okay, that's a, that's a while, right? He said, we're going way back before, before the, the advent of cell phone and social media. He said telegraphy made relevance irrelevant. I'm going to quote a, a lengthy part of that book. He said this, for the first time in human history, people were faced with the problem of information glut. He's talking about the advent of the telegraph, which means that simultaneously they were faced with the problem of a diminished social and political potency. 
You may get a sense of what this means by asking yourself, now bear with me, this is a little bit dated, asking yourself another series of questions. What steps do you plan to make to reduce the conflict in the Middle East or the rates of inflation, crime, and unemployment? What are your plans for preserving the environment or reducing the risk of nuclear war? What do you plan to do about NATO, OPEC, and the CIA, affirmative action, and the monstrous treatment of the Baha'i in Iran? I shall take the liberty of answering. You plan to do nothing about them. You may, of course, cast a ballot for someone who claims to have some plans as well as the power to act, but this you can do only once every two or four years by giving you one hour of your time. You could really have a lot of fun with this, but I forbear. Hardly a satisfying means of expressing the broad range of opinions you hold. Voting, we might even say, is the next last, next to last refuge of the politically impotent. The last refuge is, of course, giving your opinion to a pollster who will get a version of it through a desiccated question and then will submerge it in a Niagara of similar opinions and convert them into what else? Another piece of news. Thus, we have here a great loop of impotence. The news elicits from you a variety of opinions about which you can do nothing except to offer them as more news about which you can do nothing. Now, now we're talking about missions, and we'll make the application to missions and momentarily. But, you know, what, is cons what has consumed our mind and our thoughts for the last year and a half? It's been the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been getting the gospel around the world. No, I've seen a whole lot more. I've seen a whole lot of Bible-believing Christians that were more interested in a national election than they were in everlasting souls being won or lost or a part of a good Bible-believing local church. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen any number of Bible-believing Christians that had all of the world's answers to a so-called global pandemic, but when they had the opportunity, they didn't read their Bible more. They didn't have more family devotions. They didn't seize on the time at home to do something spiritually productive. They just drowned themselves. They immersed themselves in one headline after another after another because we've left the days of telegraphy. Now you get the updates on your phone in real time and you can do nothing about them. You're worried about what's going on in the Indian strain of some kind of COVID thing and you don't realize that your neighbor got cancer and you ought to be taking them a meal but you're too consumed with national headlines to know what's going on in your own neighborhood. That's the American condition. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about BLM. I'm not talking about the social justice warriors. I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians that are not concerned about the people they live with. It's like a young man in a video game. Hey Amen, I don't know if this is safe to talk about. If you're 30-something years old playing several hours of video games a week, I didn't say a day, I said a week, you are sorry. You need to repent. Amen, hallelujah, I stand by the statement, it is time, bless God, it is time to grow up. You are not 12 anymore. You got a family. You got a job. You got a house. You say, I don't have any of that stuff. See, you got problems. <laughs> Amen. Because it gives the sense that you've accomplished something when you've accomplished nothing. Amen. Hey, let me go ahead and kick it while I'm here. Social media gives you the impression that you've accomplished something, that you care about people, that you're engaged in people's life, that you got friends. You don't have any friends. You are kidding yourself. 
It's a made up imaginary world where you've got some kind of self-importance that does not exist. You would be better off to cut it all off and learn who your neighbors are. I'm trying to help. Personal transformation. That's first. Interpersonal relationships. And listen, that ought to be manifested first and foremost in relation to domestic responsibilities, which is the progress in the practical section of the book of Ephesians. Because if you are filled with the Spirit, you know what it means? It means, ma'am, that you're submissive to your husband. It means, sir, that you love your wife like Christ loved the church. It means, young people, that you obey and honor your parents as unto the Lord. Amen? See, if, if you're, if you get it straight at your house before you try to fix it at God's house. It's amazing all the people that want to come in and fix the house of God and they can't even take care of their own wife and their kids. Amen. you got to fix it at your house before you try to fix it at God's house. Somebody said every divorce is like the death of a small civilization. It's a powerful statement. It's absolutely true. We had a problem at the church house before we had same-sex marriage and L-G-B-T-Q plus, plus, plus. We had a problem at God's house before that was a reality nationally where we live. Amen. F.W. Borum related the following story from another preacher. He said that there was a man who was always talking about the empire. Here's for you, Brother Stagner. The empire. Amen. The empire. He attended every empire meeting. I was talking about the British Empire, by the way, for those of you that weren't alive in 1989. Every pro- he, he attended every empire meeting and joined every empire league. Every proposal for the expansion or aggrandizement of the empire, he applauded with enthusiasm and vigor. He enlarged upon the glories of empire at breakfast, dinner, tea, and supper, and on every available opportunity in between. The only drawback about him was that, compared with his imperial visions, his home appeared to him a rather pokey place and he treated his poor little wife with some impatience. One day he arrived before dinner was ready. The baby had been fretful, the stove had been troublesome, and everything had gone wrong. The the imperial brow clouded, and there was thunder and lightning. The poor wife winced and wept beneath the storm, and then, smiling through her tears, she went towards her Lord, laid the peevish baby in his arms, and said, There now, you mind your little bit of empire while I dish the potatoes. Now, there's a powerful story in that. There's a powerful truth in that. You can't fix America. You can change a diaper. You, God's got, God puts moral emphasis on being with the peevish baby and helping mama. Amen? Then straightening out the voting system that's broken in America. And I'm not against fixing, the, fixing that. But you can't fix it. There's some things you can fix, though. And you're more worried about the stuff you can't fix because we despise the day of small things. And then finally you come to Ephesians chapter 6 and it's talking about spiritual warfare. Okay, so when you have addressed your personal, interpersonal, and domestic spheres, now you're ready to focus upon matters of interdimensional transformation. But the truth is you're not ready to tangle with principalities, powers, and the rulers of darkness of this world when you haven't made the simple applications to the Word of God where you live 
in your home, in your workplace, in your local church. Let me tell you how all of this, I've illustrated what I'm going to try to explain to you now, okay? And illustrated a few more ways. But the point of all this is that while we learn to think generally, and that is very important, you do need to, you need to learn to think big thoughts. You need to see the parts in relation to the whole. That is, that is really important. It is good. It is good to think generally. You can't act in generalities. You always act in specifics. Now, when it comes to doctrine, we do think from the whole down to the parts. This is true whether you're doing systematic theology or whether you're practicing medicine. It's true in science as well as in history. Now, one of the, one of the difficulties of our age is the specialization and over-specialization of medicine. But you realize you can go to a doctor that focuses so much on your liver that he destroys the rest of your bodily organs. But you're more than one organ. And if you have a procedure, you better hope that there's an anesthesiologist present to pay attention to the rest of the numbers that are, come, that, that, are, that are showing up about your body functions, right? Not just your gallbladder being removed. Because you can kill somebody while you try to save them if you over-specialize. Hear me. There's a truth here. It's true when it comes to Scripture. Listen, I advocate strongly for an expositional approach to the Word of God. I think you get a regular diet of it here. We need to see the parts of Scripture in relation to the whole. We need to study themes. We need to study big ideas. We need to find the central idea of a preachable passage and focus on that in the application of the text because you need to understand that every cultist out there has got some verse or multiple verses to prop up their false doctrine in some cases those false doctrine are damnable heresies that will send you to hell. They've got Bible, but the Bible is divorced from its context. I'm afraid that we've got context when it comes to the Bible, but we don't have context when it comes to running our own lives. In practice, we work from specifics to make a difference generally. You don't rebuild an engine in an afternoon. There are too many working parts. You concentrate on one section of the engine at a time. And you don't reform society by fixing large institutions, which is the objective of socialism. It is more effective to start close to home if you want to research the concept. It's called the doctrine of subsidiarity. And by the way, in our day, we need to recognize that communism empowers the state while it dismantles the home. And in the end, not only is the totalitarian mon monstrosity that is created, the, the, uh, highly inefficient, it's also subversive to its original objectives. You don't need the government to fix your problems. You need to take responsibility for yourself. Let me ask you a question. When you think back on your life and those who have been most influential in your life, just, just think, about five names or maybe ten names, just off the top of your head, the people that have impacted you the most. How many poets are on there? Artists? Politicians? Philosophers? No. No on your list and on mine are parents, teachers, pastors, Right? 
We all know it's possible to get tunnel vision, to miss the big picture. The saying is, don't miss the forest for the trees. You think it's possible to get so focused on the big picture that we miss the substance that makes up the picture? You think it's possible to miss the trees <laughs> for the proverbial forest? Could we miss the individual while focusing on the group like in evangelism? And so emphasize, you know, foreigners, immigrants, that we forget these are souls, the mission field that's come to us. Political opponents? I think something's happened to a man's conscience when he believes that abortion is okay. I, I believe that strongly. But the individual that believes that is not my personal enemy. Christ died for him too. Is it possible that we could miss out on a relationship while trying to pull off an event that's supposed to serve the relationship? Now, I'm not trying to be smart when I say this, but look, get your father something for Father's Day. But what's way more valuable than trying to make up for being a lousy son or daughter in on one special day of the year is trying to honor your dad, you know, like 52 weeks out of the year. Because you're not going to fix a relationship that is broken by doing something really nice on the occasion of an event. And sometimes you're trying to do a birthday party for your kid and you're ripping your kid's face off every time they come into the room because they keep messing something up and you forgot the party's for him. Just do your kid a favor and don't have a party anymore. Amen. Americans are trying to fix their family by taking a week-long vacation. It's true. And you go on a vacation and you hate most of it. And you spend money you didn't need to spend. Amen. And you get home and you need a vacation from having taken your vacation. And your kids don't like you and your wife is mad. And you wonder, why did I do this? So much of the time it's because we're trying to make up for lost time. And we're trying to fix a lifetime that's not properly spent in a week. And it can't be done. Can I tell you that, that COVID... It affected all of us. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of hearing people talk about it just like you are. It was one of the best things that happened to my family. Now, I'm sorry people got sick. I really am. I'm not, I'm not speaking with lightness, but I went from having meetings and teaching Bible Institute, teaching Sunday school, preparing international travel, to having nothing to do. Nothing. You know what I did? My, my son, Owen, with me, he had a lawn business. And guess what? I was the hired help for a whole summer. I wouldn't take anything for that. It was good for us. In the, with the pressure of the ministry and always, it's hard to explain the kind of pressure that's on a preacher that's constantly preparing for the next ministry, the next message, the next meeting. It's hard, to, it's hard, for, you to, it's hard for so many of you to understand that. But it is easy for me to, to leave the church after studying and trying to concentrate and go home and study more. But you know what? I had less to study for. So you know what I did? I went home and I spent time with my small children and I saw a transformation in my family. And may I tell you, one of the hardest things, we got two boys we're going to leave behind when we move to Africa. One of the hardest things about watching my kids grow up is the regret 
of missed opportunities that I can never get back. And you know what? I got some of the big stuff right. And I'm thankful for the grace of God. But if I could go back, I'd work on the little stuff. I'd redeem, I'd redeem the passing moments. I'd be less short-tempered about the little interruptions in my day-to-day life and give my attention to somebody who I profess to love with all my heart. I'm, a, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not... Hey, the next time... I drive from Carthage to where I live in Hartsville on an afternoon and we've only got a few more weeks like that in this world. Uh, it is amazing to watch. They, they, know, they know what the clock reads and I got three little people that run from my porch down to the end of our long driveway as fast as they can to meet their daddy at the end of the road so they can ride with me back up to the house. That didn't happen with my three older children and it's my fault. But I emphasize the big ones, you know. Hey, you're getting ready to go to youth camp. I'm not against youth camp. But you don't have to spend one week out of 52 every year trying to get right with God for not walking with God the other 51 weeks in the year. You could have a relationship with Jesus Christ that doesn't have to be annually revived. Hey, and listen, I, that Jubilee, great. Camp meeting, fine. Missions conference, I'm for it. But if you're the kind of Christian that lives from one camp meeting to another camp meeting to another camp meeting to another camp meeting to another camp meeting, you are a lousy Christian. Because Christianity is not a camp meeting. Your Christianity is no better than it is whenever the camp meeting's over. And God's a whole lot less concerned with how high you jump or how loud you holler on Sunday than when you are when you get home Monday afternoon, how you talk to your wife and what you do spending time with your kids. Amen. Hallelujah. Don't despise a day of small things. Missions. You think it's possible that we could miss out on what is truly biblical missions while we're trying to reach the world? You know the general approach? I'm sure that, that this is the goal in Wales just as it's the goal in Zimbabwe. We want to train nationals to reach their own people. Even in English, people think differently there than Brother Stagner grew up thinking. They can reach their own people better than anybody else can. We want to, we want to, read up, we want to meet up with men. We want to reach the men. We want to teach the nationals to reach their own people. Now, let me ask you, in northwest Florida, who are the nationals? You get the message? Acts 1.8, it's not an either or. It's a both and proposition. And it always starts where you're at. You don't start in the uttermost. You start in Jerusalem. Now, you don't neglect the uttermost while you work in Jerusalem, but you work in Jerusalem while you work in the uttermost. And in, that, in the book of Acts, the most rapid expansion in church history was not in the context of, of mass crusades. It is when persecution visited the church and individual Christians, I'm talking about lay people, quote unquote, lay people, went out in Acts chapter 8 preaching the gospel everywhere. The gospel went to Ethiopia. It was introduced in the uttermost parts because Philip ministered to one man. 
How do you think the gospel gets to the end of the world? That's how. Each one. Reach one. The truth is that our lives are made up of small things. But the greatness that is possible in the big picture of things is never realized with our attention, without our attention to those small things. A few more brief illustrations and then we'll be through. You've probably seen this. Admiral William McRaven gave the commencement speech at the University of Texas in 2014. It's turned into a little book. You dads might want to read it to your sons or you sons might want to get it for your dad for Father's Day. He drew from his years of SEAL training in offering a speech in which his thesis was summed up as follows. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. He claimed that if every student changed the lives of ten people, and that every one of those ten people changed the lives of ten other people, that in five generations it would have affected the lives of 800 million. Who was Edward Kimball? You've heard these illustrations before. There's an exhibit at the Billy Graham Memorial Library I saw years ago. And it is a fascinating period in church history, whatever you think about Graham's evangelism. And it traced the chain of influences that led to Billy Graham's conversion. Graham was converted in a Mordecai Ham meeting in North Carolina. Mordecai Ham was influenced by the British evangelist J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman was heavily influenced by his evangelistic work, in his evangelistic work, by the great evangelist Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was encouraged to enter that full-time evangelistic work by a man by the name of D.L. Moody. Until recently, there was a plaque on a building in downtown Boston. Saw it with my own eyes. It read this, D.L. Moody, Christian evangelist, friend of man, founder of Northfield Schools, was converted to God in a shoe store on this site, April 21, 1885. That shoe store owner and youth Sunday school teacher's name was Edward Kimball. The end of the world is coming. I say that biblically. The end of the world is on the horizon. Now when you find the end of the world, that biblical terminology, it has two references. It references on the one hand the end of a world system at the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You find this usage in Hebrews 9.26. I'm going to close with this. Bear with me. And the end of another world system takes place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Matthew 13.40, Matthew 24.13. I want you to think about those two instances as we bring this sermon to a conclusion. Jesus Christ in, in Luke 9.51, He is on his way. That's the dividing line in the Gospel of Luke separates the seeking that which is lost and the saving that which is lost. The theme of the book of Luke, Luke 19.10. Luke 9.51, He is on His way to Jerusalem. He sets His face as a flint toward Jerusalem and because, of course, when He goes to Jerusalem, He's going to a cross where He is going to accomplish His decease and shed the blood that will redeem the world. And after he sets his face 
toward Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, you have the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, which tells of two different kinds of religious parties that were too busy to be concerned with one wounded Israeli in a ditch and a good Samaritan who obeyed the law that wasn't even given to him. In Luke chapter 17, there are two lepers that are cleansed. Jesus Christ is not demonstrating his messianic credentials when he does that. He is not teaching something in particular to his disciples. It is an act of kindness and compassion bestowed upon those that had no claim to it. And it is basically on his way to accomplish the end of the world. There's a blind man that's healed in Luke chapter 18. There's a tax collector that's converted in Luke chapter 19. And all of those are asides in the greatest mission that has ever been launched in the history of humanity. And when Jesus Christ reached his destination, you know what he did when he went to the cross? This is, think of this with me. He simply finished doing what he'd been doing all along, laying his life down for others. Second end of the world. We are approaching a global military conflict. The nations of this world are going to unite. They're going to march against the Lamb of God. Under the head of the devil incarnate. You believe the Bible, right? I'm not talking about current events tonight. I'm talking about the Bible. Remember? The Bible, right. The upcoming end of the world will consummate with a global military conflict with an army of United Nations under the direction of the devil incarnate marching against the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd say that's a pretty dramatic and horrific close to the present age. But think with me. Think with me. I mean, take yourself in your imagination to that global conflict described in Revelation chapter 19. Now hit the rewind button. Go all the way back in time. Do you know where that scene begins? It begins with a man and a woman in a garden with a small thing to do. And they failed to do the small thing. And it results in that. I want to reach the world. I really do. I believe this church wants to reach the world. So how are we going to do it? Here's an idea. Send a letter this week. Amen. An evangelistic letter this week. Knock on a neighbor's door. Amen. Walk to the cubicle down the hall. Bring up the gospel with a coworker. Call on the phone that family member that your heart's been burdened about that you know is lost. How are we going to reach the world? Each one. Reach one. The message tonight? One point. Start small. That's how we reach the world. Let's stand together, heads bowed.